We come this morning to our sermon series in the Gospel of John. We're picking up where we left off three Lord's Days ago, and we're looking at John chapter 5, beginning in verse 30. And if you are, um, if you have a copy of Scripture, I know that you'll find it helpful to be reading along with me this morning. We're looking at John chapter 5, verses 30 through 47. You'll find that printed in the bulletin. You'll also... Um, find it helpful to either have your copy of scripture open or to be reading along there in the bulletin with me. And um, John chapter 5, we have been looking at Jesus's healing of the man at the pool in Bethesda. Uh, It is the Lord's third miracle in the gospel of John, and it is that miracle that highlights the sovereign compassion of Jesus. Jesus has gone to this man, not because this man has cried out to him, but because Jesus has identified this man in his state of helplessness and hopelessness, and he has decided to go and heal this man. This man has been a picture of helpless and hopeless humanity, 38 long years And the Lord Jesus has healed him on the Sabbath day, and that has enraged the religious leaders in Israel, and they have wanted to kill him. And so then that, in turn, has led the Lord Jesus to defend his deity and the fact that he has been working with his Father and that all that he does, the Father does, and all the Father does, he does— And Jesus has given what is one of the greatest defenses of his deity uh, so far in the fourth gospel. And um, again, that has only furthered the rage and the hatred of the Pharisees uh, toward the Son of God. And Jesus is continuing now uh, in his defense of his deity— And here in John 5, beginning in verse 30, he says to the Pharisees, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. 
How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God endures forever. Well, C.S. Lewis, in one of his most famous writings, God in the Dock, uh, wrote these words. He said, the ancient man approached God or even the gods as the accused person approaches his judge. For the modern man, the roles are reversed. He is the judge. God is in the dock. He is quite a kindly judge. If God should have a reasonable defense for being the God who permits war, poverty, or disease, he is ready to listen to it. The trial may even end in God's acquittal, but the important thing is that man is on the bench and God is in the dock. Now, What's interesting is that while Lewis is right in one sense, for the ancient man, man was in the dock and God was on the bench, and for the modern man, man is on the bench and God is in the dock, there is another sense, and we see this, don't we, when we read the scriptures in which the Pharisees were constantly putting God in the dock because they were putting Jesus in the dock. They were putting Jesus on trial. They were constantly saying to Jesus, who do you think that you are? And it's very interesting because the Lord Jesus, and this struck me as I meditated on this passage in particular, the Lord Jesus is so gentle, and he is so lowly in spirit that he allows himself to be put in the dock. I don't know if that's ever struck you before. The Lord Jesus is so gentle and he is so lowly that he allows himself to be put, as it were, on trial. In this passage, it's as if he puts himself on trial and he produces witnesses that bear witness to who he is even though he doesn't have to do that. There's only one person that's ever lived that didn't have to put himself in the dock and bring out witnesses to exonerate himself. And that is the eternal Son of God. And yet, he does that, and he tells us in this passage he does that not because he needs that testimony, but that you may be saved. Isn't that interesting? He says... I don't receive testimony from men, but I say these things that you may be saved. Now, we're going to see at the end of this passage that they're not going to receive that evidence. Uh, They're not going to receive that testimony. Uh, It's very much like the 20th century philosopher Bertrand Russell who wrote that famous book, Why I Don't Believe in God, who at, at the end of his life on his deathbed was asked, what if you're wrong? And, and God says to you, why didn't you believe? And he said, not enough evidence, not enough evidence. Uh, there's plenty of evidence. The problem is not that there's not enough evidence. The problem is that men have evil 
unbelieving hearts and they will not believe. Um, The Lord Jesus will bear witness to that in this passage. Now, this morning I want us to consider three things. I want us to consider first the messianic claim. And then I want us to consider witnesses to the messianic claim. And then I want us to consider the unbelief that rejects the messianic claim. The messianic claim witnesses to the messianic claim and the unbelief that rejects the messianic claim. Well, notice there in verse 30, Jesus is, is developing that discourse. He has given us uh, that defense of his deity. He has said, all that the Father does, I am doing. And, and whatever you see the Son doing, the Father is doing. There is perfect harmony. The, the Godhead is undivided. The persons of the Godhead are always uh, at work in, in everything that they're doing. Who was it that healed the man at the pool of Bethesda? The Father healed him. The Son healed him. The Spirit healed him. The, the triune God was at work. And in the incarnate Christ, all the members of the Godhead were at work. And, and Jesus has defended his deity. And, and notice that that he says there in verse 30, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my will, but the will of him who sent me. Now, there's only been one person who can ever claim messianic claims. Many people have tried to make messianic claims. I had a friend who, for four months, was visited by a guy who told him he was Jesus Christ. Needless to say, that man is in a mental institution now. Um, Lots of people have claimed to be Jesus. Um, Now, only one person can make a messianic claim and be the Messiah, and that is the Messiah. And Jesus has made those messianic claims. He has claimed to be the long-awaited seed of the woman. He has claimed to be the Word made flesh. He has claimed to be the one sent by the Father. He has claimed to be the one who has come from the bosom of the Father. He has claimed to be the one who has spoken all the things he has heard from the Father. He has claimed to be the one who was always with the Father from all eternity, who came from the Father and who was going back to the Father. And he is the only one who can make those claims. Um, I've often wondered what the first hearers of those claims must have thought when they heard them. Um, Because, as we noted the last time, if Jesus is not who he said he was, then he was either a liar or a lunatic. Um, this is the Lord of all. This is the eternal word. And, um, and Jesus is not speaking on his own authority. Notice, notice the beginning of verse 30. He said, I can do nothing on my own. Notice the messianic claim is rooted in who the triune God is in himself. It's, it's rooted in the authority of the triune God. It's not rooted in some renegade individual. It's, it's rooted in who God is in himself. Jesus can only say and speak 
what the triune God says and speaks collectively. He, he is only going to say and speak the truth in so much as it comes from the triune God himself. Um, this is how Jesus can actually say in this passage, if, if I speak on my own and, and that's it, then that testimony is not true. If, if it were just me, then it would not be true on its own. Um, all, of the, all of the eternal authority of the triune God is invested in the messianic claim of Jesus. Um, notice Jesus says there in verse 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. Now Jesus is not saying, he's not saying that there's anything untrue in him. What he's saying is, according to their customs and, and in their court systems, because remember, Jesus is essentially putting himself on trial. He's saying, according to their customs, if he spoke by himself, from himself, that that, that would not be a valid witness to the truth. Now, he is going to set out a, a fourfold witness to the truth. He's going to set, set out a fourfold testimony to, to, to who he is. And, and that's what I want us to consider here secondly. And the, and the majority of this passage is taken up with uh, the fourfold witness to the Messianic claim. Now, the first witness is the Lord Jesus himself. Um, by the way, I don't know if you've ever thought about this, but Jesus is the only person, this is not true of you, by the way, whose, whose destiny and conscious purpose were one and the same. I know that's deep. I understand. His destiny and his conscious purpose were one and the same. Jesus knew exactly who he was from all eternity, that he was the eternal son come in the flesh. He knew, he knew who he was. He knew why he had come. He wasn't trying to figure out who he was. We live in a day and age when people are confused about who they are. They're confused about their genders. They're confused about everything. Jesus was not confused about anything. Jesus knew exactly who he was. Jesus knew where he came from. Jesus knew why he had come. His destiny and his conscious purpose were one and the same. And so he bore witness from himself to, to, to who he was. Um, this is the one who later in the Gospel of John is going to say, before Abraham was, I am. This is the one who, who declared himself to be Yahweh. This is the one who declared himself to be the great I am. This is the one who could stand and say, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus knew exactly who he is, and he bore witness to that constantly. The self-disclosure of Jesus is a testimony to who he is. But notice that Jesus says there is a second testimony. Notice this. He says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. Now, some have 
mistakenly suppose that this is Jesus referring to John the Baptist because in the next verse he says, you sent to John. But, but it's more likely that he's talking about God the Father here. Because here in this verse, notice he says, there is another who bears witness about me. And in the next verse he says, you sent to John who bore witness about me. Before, John is now out of the picture, and Jesus here is talking about God the Father. He's saying he bore witness of himself, and now he's saying there is another who bears witness about me, and his witness is true. And then notice Jesus will pick up on this, and he says, and the Father who sent me has borne witness about me. Now, this, this is everywhere the case in the gospel records. God the Father bears witness to the Son at the baptism. Remember when Jesus goes to the baptism and, and John the Baptist is baptizing him and the voice comes from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And remember on the transfiguration, God the Father comes and the glory cloud overshadows the Son and the voice comes out of the, the cloud, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. The Father is bearing witness to the Son. And the Father is also bearing witness to the, to the Son in everything that the Son is doing and saying and teaching. It is, remember, the Father doing those things in the Son. Um, Jesus will often remind those who are contending with him that if they really knew his Father, they would honor him because it's the Father doing those things in him. And all that the Son does, the Father does. And so the Father was always bearing witness to the Son and was evidencing that he was the Son. Now there is a third witness here, and it is John the Baptist. And you'll notice there in verse 32 that Jesus says to them, You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth, not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Now, remember, we have seen John the Baptist throughout the early chapters of the fourth gospel. And, and John the Baptist is supremely important for building up people in faith in Jesus Christ. Um, John was prophesied of in the Old Testament. Isaiah prophesied of him. Malachi prophesied of him. John, John was uh, predicted that there was going to be a forerunner who was going to be one like Elijah, who was going to come and prepare the way of the Lord, who was going to be a voice in the wilderness, who was going to come and make straight the way of the Lord. And, and he was going to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the children to the fathers. And, and he was going to go before the Lord and, and, and before the great and awful day of the Lord. And, and John came and he came out of the wilderness and he came eating locust and wild honey. And he lived an ascetical lifestyle and he was like John the Baptist. And he came forward and he pointed at Jesus and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And everybody was coming to John, and everybody knew John was a prophet, and people were listening to John, 
And even the religious leaders were coming to John because they knew that there was something different about John. And yet, John had one message and one only, and that message was to point to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus here reminds them, you went to John, you were willing to listen to him for a time, you were willing to see that he was a burning and a shining lamp, and now you're rejecting his testimony. Now, let me just say something this morning. I think it's very interesting what Jesus says here about John the Baptist, because there are multitudes of people that will listen to Christian preachers and teachers for a season in their life when there is sort of religious fanaticism, there's excitement, maybe there's a movement, everybody seems to be getting on it, it's popularity, churches are being planted, young people are getting excited, and then it kind of fizzles out, and many of those same people don't listen anymore. That's the picture we're supposed to have here of what Jesus is saying to these religious leaders in Israel. For a time, you were willing to listen to John, but now you're not. Um, you know, it's one of the most sobering things for a minister of the gospel is, is for me to have seen so many in the 20 or so years I've been a true believer making professions of faith, seeming to be zealous, seeming to follow men that preach the gospel, and then just abandoning their profession, making shipwreck of the faith. Even ministers, children of believers, professing believers, um, it's a real thing. And, and it's a sobering thing, and it ought to be a sobering thing to us. And we ought to really take it to heart. Um, Jesus is here essentially bringing an indictment against them for not receiving the witness of John to who he was and who he is. Now, <clears throat> Jesus is going to bring forward another witness. Um, and notice uh, he is going to say, he says, there is going to be a greater testimony than John. Notice this. He says, the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. Now, here Jesus is bringing yet another witness forward. He's saying, there is a greater witness than John the Baptist, and that witness is all of the works that I'm doing. The, 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 the miracle of the water to wine at Cana of Galilee 
was a witness to who Jesus is. Remember, when Jesus had turned the water to wine, he was showing that he had come to bring spiritual blessings. He had come to be able to do what Judaism could never do. He had come to do what religiosity could never do in the souls of the people. He had come to bring spiritual joy and power. He had come to do in the hearts of the people what no one else could do. And at the end of that miracle, remember, his disciples saw his glory, and they believed in him. They, they received the witness of that miracle. Remember, remember when, when the, 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 the friends of the paralytic let him down through, through um, the, the, the ceiling of the building, and, and, and they, they, they let him down into that room where Jesus was being surrounded by the people, and Jesus saw that man, and he saw the religious leaders, and he said to that man, son, your sins are forgiven you, and they grumbled, and he said, which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven you, or rise, take up your bed and walk, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth to forgive sins, I say, take up your bed and walk. And so he heals the man so that they would know that he had the power to forgive the man. You see, Jesus is saying, the very works that I do are a witness to who I am and what I came to do. Um, by the way, I don't know if you've ever thought about this. There's not one place in the Gospels where the enemies of Jesus ever deny that he did the miracles he did. They attribute them to Satan, but they never deny that he did them. I want you to think about that. It's not one place in the Gospels where the enemies of Jesus ever said, he didn't really do that. They said he cast out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. You see, they saw the miracles. They were evident to everybody. The witness was evident. The testimony was clear. The works were evident. But they would not believe. Um, that, that is a striking, a striking indictment against an evil heart of unbelief in fallen man, isn't it? B.B. Warfield, the great line of Princeton, put it this way. He said, evidence alone does not produce faith. I want you to listen carefully. He said, did the abundant evidence of the divine mission of Christ convince the Jews? They sought his life more vindictively for every evidence they could not resist. They answered his demonstration of deity by hanging him on the tree. Think about that. The more evidence Jesus gave them, the more they wanted to destroy him. You see, it's not lack of evidence why men will not believe. J.C. Ryle put it this way. He said, unbelief does not arise so much from want of evidence as from want of will to believe. You see, they didn't want to believe. It's not that they didn't have enough evidence as Bertrand Russell tried to say he didn't have, it's that they didn't want to believe. 
Um, notice that Jesus brings out a final witness. And, and in, in one sense, and I, I do want to press this home this morning for us, because we are not going to see any miracles this morning. I'm really sorry to disappoint you. I am not going to do a single miracle. And, and woe betide anybody that tells you they're going to. Um, <laughs> there's not going to be any miracles. Um, but, but the final witness, the final testimony to who Jesus is, is the most important. And that is the scriptures themselves. Notice what Jesus says here. He, he, says, he says here, and, and there's a question about how this should be translated, by the way. He says, either you search the scriptures, or it may be translated, search the scriptures, as an imperative. It could be translated either way. You search the scriptures, or search the scriptures, uh, because in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. It is they that bear witness about me. Now remember, Jesus is speaking about the Old Testament. Those are the only scriptures that the Jews have at this time. Genesis to Malachi. And, and he says, the scriptures bear witness to me. He is the seed of the woman. He is the seed of Abraham. He is the seed of David. He is the servant of the Lord, spoken of by Isaiah. He is the messenger of the covenant. He is the angel of the Lord. He is, he is uh, the sacrifice. He is the temple. He is the lamb. He is every single type and shadow. He is every ordinance. He is, he is everything in the pages of Scripture. All of the prophecies, all of the narratives, all of the laws point to him. Everything in the Old Testament points to him. Um, it, doesn't, it doesn't become about him in the New Testament. Jesus says it's all about him. And... and it all bears witness to him. And the greatest witness to who Jesus is, is the scriptures. Remember, remember when the rich man, in, in Jesus' parable, the rich man and Lazarus dies, and, and he says to Abraham, just send somebody back to my brothers, that they don't come to this place of torment. And, and, and you know, if somebody would just go back from the dead, they would believe. And he says, no. He says, no. He says they have, Abraham, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. If they will not hear them, neither will they believe, even if one rises from the dead. Um, that's how sufficient a witness the scripture is. That if men and women will not believe the testimony of scripture, they will not believe even if one rises from the dead. Um, I remember when the movie The Passion of Christ came out, one of my coworkers at a restaurant in Greenville, South Carolina said, I guess you're going to go see it. I said, actually, I'm not, because Jim Caviezel's not Jesus. And she didn't understand that. That was all right. But um, she said, well, my boyfriend's going to go, because he really needs to see to believe. And I just, I thought, how sad. He's not going to believe by seeing Jim Caviezel pretend to be Jesus if you don't believe the scriptures. And that may sound harsh. 
I know you may be sitting there and you may think, that sounds harsh. I don't like that. Well, Jesus says that. The Bible says that. Jesus says, even if one rises from the dead, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And notice he says here, he says to the Pharisees, you search the scriptures. You think in them you have eternal life. These are they that bear witness about me, but you refuse to come to me. Now, what is the end goal of reading the Bible? It's not just to amass knowledge. And, and if I can raise a warning to us who are Reformed, oh my, this is the biggest warning. If you like Reformed theology and you like to study Reformed theology, this is the biggest warning. The end is not to get a head full of knowledge so you can win an argument. Because you know what? You can win an argument. The end goal needs to be to know Jesus Christ experientially, to know him. Not to be right ethically, not to be right politically, not to be right theologically. Those are all good things. That is not the end goal of knowing the Bible. Knowing the Bible, the end goal is to know the Lord Jesus Christ. He says, you are not willing to come to me. Notice Jesus says at the end here to the Jews that don't believe there's one who accuses you. I'm not going to even have to. He says, Moses, on whom you've set your hope, if you believe Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? I want to read to you something that Sinclair Ferguson wrote here as we walk out of this this morning. Ferguson says this, he says, the whole of eternity is balancing on this question. Who is Jesus, and what am I doing about it? For those who are broken and needy, he is so full of gentleness and grace. But to those who are haughty and high-minded, they will break themselves upon this rock. At the end of the day, it is the greatest question in the world. Who do you think Jesus is, and what are you doing about it? Jesus said, come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and you will find rest for your souls. The whole point of the witnesses that Jesus pulls forward and sets out is that you would come to him to find rest for your guilty, sin-ridden, burdened souls. That's the whole point. Whether it is his own testimony, the testimony of the Father, the testimony of John the Baptist, the testimony of his mighty works, or the testimony of the scriptures themselves. You know, I was thinking about this as I meditated on it, and all of this really comes to bear at the cross when you come to the end of John's gospel. It's interesting, isn't it, that you can't even, you can't even come to the narrative about the crucifixion of the Son of God without these testimonies 
coming to bear, right? What, what did John, what was John the Baptist's testimony about Jesus? Behold the Lamb of God. Where is he the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world? On the cross. And, and the Father, bearing witness to the Son, when the Son is crying out to the Father on the cross, and the Father is, as it were, hiding his face from the Son because the Son has come to do the will of the Father and to finish the work the Father has given him to do on the cross. Until the Son cries out, it is finished, doing all that the Father has given him. And then the witness of the Scriptures. Think about this. John makes a huge deal of this. Not one of his bones were broken that the Scriptures might be fulfilled. He's the Passover lamb. The Scriptures were being fulfilled when he hung on the cross. Even as the Son is fulfilling all things, all of the witnesses are bearing witness to him so that you would believe and so that you would come to him. I hope that as the Lord Jesus brings these witnesses before you this morning, your response will be vastly different than the response of the religious leaders in Israel that he was confronting, and that you will go to him. The same Jesus that said, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest for your souls in the days of his flesh, is the same Jesus that says it today. He says, Come to me. You search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. These are they that bear witness of me. Come to me. Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear this morning what the Spirit says. Let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we do thank you and praise you for the witnesses that you have given us to your Son. We thank you that they are true. We thank you that you are true. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you are the truth. We thank you that you have given us ample evidence, and yet, Lord, we know that we would not believe if it were not for your grace, and so we pray that you would give us a greater manifestation of your grace. We pray that you would draw us to your Son this morning. We pray that you would make us a people who both search the scriptures and a people who come to the Lord Jesus in faith. We ask, Lord, that you would remove from us any unbelief, any evil hearts of unbelief, and we pray that you would draw us with cords of love and mercy. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you receive sinners who come to you in helplessness and in abandonment. We thank you that you are the same Christ yesterday, today, and forever. We pray these things in your name. Amen.